good evening, everyone. I am um, day two of one hot flash after another. Uh, me and my dogs went for a walk around the neighborhood and um, investigated some new neighbors. We don't like them. We've decided we don't like them at all. That's okay. It's a rental, so maybe they'll move on soon. <laughs> I have a little dog, and I have a medium-sized dog now. Um, and my little dog's always trying to pick fights, and he can't win in a million years. Like, like little dogs do, as they do. Um, and uh, I had to pick him up, carry him home, all 35 pounds of him. Because he is little compared to the other one. Now, I see people think that a little dog wouldn't be 35 pounds, but he is my littler dog. He's my smaller dog. <laughs> super, super annoying having to cart this little dog all the way home um, around the block. It, it was about, I don't know, 100 feet. But 35 pounds at 100 feet of stiff, furious dog was no was no small thing. Let me tell you, no small thing at all. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't like them. I don't like them because they're they're they got some tacky shit on their porch. And you know what? If you're gonna have stuff on your porch, it needs to number one, not be tacky. And number two, it needs to match the house. It, it doesn't, their house is gray and black. And they've got day glow orange lawn, lawn furniture. Like, I'm talking like Home Depot orange. You know, that orange color, that that really vibrant, big lots orange Yeah, orange is never really going to be the new black. Uh, I, it's just, it's... It's tacky. My dogs don't like them. I don't like them, but they got a bad taste. Anyways, <coughs> Julie and I are going to do um, the Soulmate Plot Drift as a continuation of our podcast last night, talking about um, Soulmate... Um, as far as it being a trope in fandom and our in the various ways we like that. Um, in that hot mess of a podcast, it started late because I, I spent so much time bitching about my circumstances, which I'm currently doing right now. So I'm going to stop before I'm 15 minutes in still bitching. And um, shit. Okay. Here we go. Hey. Howdy. Wait, hold on, hold on. Where is it? I had something I was going to let you listen to. But it is gone from my board. Huh, it's gone. Never mind. Oh, shoot. I had something on my board. I was gonna... I wonder where it went. That's what I let down. I feel let down. 
you know, when we do a, when we do a plot drift, I try not to put any thought into it before the show until like five or ten minutes before. And today I was especially successful at not thinking about it because I, I, I was dialing in and went, shit, I haven't thought about this. <laughs> Way too successful at it. Way too successful. So, um, <clears throat> but no, their their lawn furniture really is tacky. I'm I'm wondering if um, they're Tennessee Vol fans, um, and just haven't updated their their because it's, it's wood. It's it's wood furniture, and they just moved, so maybe they just haven't had time to paint it yet to match the house. I don't know. But nobody needs an eyesore. No one wants to go on a walk with their dog and flinch every time they go past their neighbor's house. I'm going to have to get some clip-on sunglasses from my glasses. And maybe get some goggles from my dog. <laughs> Don't look at that. Don't look at it, boys. It's just it'll hurt you. <laughs> Anyways. I, I, I have... I have Sorry, enough since last night. I have continu- continued pondering the cracked cloud soulmate. <laughs> it's just not. A, I'm it's just not gonna sit a here on this it's pile of gold until you come apologize. <laughs> and who's growing me my durin? <laughs> Uh, it is amusing. It's probably more amusing than it should be, to be perfectly honest. <clears throat> yeah, I like that. Probably, but the, the, they probably need darker lenses, though. They need a blinder on the side that you can shift so they don't have to look at the house. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Gosh, I didn't so plan anything let's, either. Let's should we pick a fandom first? Let's start with fandom. Yeah. Okay. Fandom. Fandom. Winting really hard, like that's going to make it come clear. Um, well, let's pick a hard fandom to do first. A hard one. Yeah, because it's easy to put soulmate tropes and like like we talked about before about magical verses and paranormal situations where there's werewolves or witches and wizards or fantasy elements involved. But it's more difficult to put soulmate um, mythology into a um, contemporary setting like Hawaii Five O or NCIS or um, those are the only two that were like criminal minds, you know, stuff like that. It, it's easier. Yeah. It's, it's harder to put those things in there. So, Yeah, contemporary setting plus where you don't have the kind of fantasy element like you get with um, the science fiction type nature of, because like Marvel Cinematic Universe, for all that it's like contemporary setting, it does have that kind of science fiction underpinnings. And a little bit of fantasy too. There's a little bit of magic going on. Well, well only mildly related. Now Fraggle Rock is stuck in my brain. Thank you, Azure. I appreciate that. So, how about we just do the mothership? Okay, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Life, so. 
we we can deal with we can deal with the mothership. Okay. Um, so if it's those of you who live in a cave, the mothership is Tony Dinozo and Steve McGarrett. Yes. Let's see. So I was thinking there's I was thinking the one thing I was thinking last night is that there could be a variant on the um, touching to. Um, sort of trigger trigger your identification of your soulmate. Um, what if what if um, it was like a proximity thing, as opposed to physical contact? That'd be less creepy. Like you know, when you were within, you could, it could even be something kind of big. Like you might get a tingle or something when you were within fifty yards of your soulmate or something, which would actually make it a lot easier to find your soulmate. Because, um, I mean, if it's just random chance that you're going to touch somebody, people, you know, either be very touchy or not touchy at all. But if if it's something where you just get close and you get kind of an alert that you could kind of follow, uh, that would be kind of different. Like, oh, I'm on this aircraft carrier and something feels a little bit different. My soulmate must be here. Wherever else can he be? You know, it's almost like a variant of the, the love at first sight. Yeah. Um, or it could be a mark type thing. Um, I like the idea of marks. Um, I'm off, often kind of intrigued about the mark coming up after you meet as opposed to being born with it. But being born with a mark is interesting, too. When we were born with a mark in a modern society where we're all connected with the internet, there would be databases. Like whether you, oh, yeah. whether it'd be like government run or like, hey, you know, you turn sixteen, seventeen years old, ever how, whatever age they decide, and you get the opportunity to add your your mark um, to the database to see if you have a soulmate out there. You know, if your soulmate oh, has. Yes. And around the world, there'd be that epic conversation happening every day in families all over where um, parents would be going, you kids have it so easy today. You just put a picture in a database and your soulmate just pops up in your face. When, <laughs> when I was a kid, we had to go out and work for it. Yeah, yeah, Dad. You had to you had to go out and shake 100,000 hands to find your soulmate. I've heard this a million times. And hold on. I have to go friend my soulmate on Facebook. <laughs> Be the soulmate version of you guys have it so easy these days. <laughs> <laughs> I had to sail halfway around the world. You know the troubles I went through to meet your mother. <laughs> but even, but you know even before the internet, there would have been archives. I would say mm-hmm. in, in major cities where you would go to the archivist and um, present a drawing. Or, or, or a picture, depending on the time period, of your mark, um, and then they would cross-list it and cross-reference it and try to find your match. Yeah, there would be I literally the matchmakers. Yeah, I could see the Pony Express, you know, like carrying around um, updates to, you know, registries, soul mark registries. In fact, you know what, because that kind of thing, if it's been since the beginning, that would have been the... Um, 
the spark that kind of spurned global communication, letter writing, um, the written word itself, paper, that need to communicate and find your soulmate. When you realize your soulmate's not in your community, how am I going to find them? You know, and so there would have been all kinds of um, innovation surrounding just the idea of getting your soul mark out there in the hopes that you can connect with the person who's got your match. That's if you have identical soulmate marks. But what if you don't? What if the marks are personalized, yeah. like what I did with her on your sleeve? They uh, they got their soul marks after touching, and it was based on, um, basically, it was based on what they identified the most with that person. That was their symbol. Yeah. I like that concept of like kind of the idea of how you thought of the person at the moment you touched was sort yeah. of how the, how the mark manifested itself. Um, that could, yeah. Steve is just really like, lucky. His soul mark wasn't fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> or a bag of dicks. <laughs> 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 you know, cause I mean, or a popsicle, literally a yeah, popsicle. Popsicle. Um, that could be a, um, a the double-edged sword to that kind of soul mark is if you are in a really contentious relationship with somebody you've never touched and you think of them negatively, then you've got a soul mark forever that somehow is some kind of manifestation of because <laughs> like <laughs> to be very literal to, to terms that have been used in the show is like let's say that Styles and Jackson were soulmates and they touched the first time and <laughs> Styles gets a douchebag on his wrist. Because <laughs> that's what he's always calling Jackson, right? He calls him he always calls him some version of douche something. So once he gets a douchebag did, did you just see what she put in the chat room? <laughs> <laughs> My husband was an asshole the first time I met him. In <laughs> uh, the second, and the third, and yesterday. <laughs> it's it's a revisited theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think I think in a to make life simpler for myself. In a, um, if I was going to do marks, and I do like the idea of marks, but if I was going to do marks, I would, in a, in a contemporary setting where there's no, of course, then I have to explain how the soulmate stuff works. But anyway, in a contemporary setting like like with NCIS and Hawaii Five O, I would not um, probably choose to do marks that occur at birth or at puberty or whatever like that. I probably would be a, 
a mark that either occurred when you first touch or um, actually probably um, when your soul bond was completed is when your mark. Um, so if you had like a personal mark where it really did have a lot to do with how you felt the other person, um, you would want the the marks to be like some sort of fully in that case, the mark could be kind of fully realized about how well you know that person because he's kind of gone through the getting to know each other process and decide to go forward with a soulmate bond, then you get your mark after your bond is complete. Um, I think I would do some kind of that proximity alert thing, which sounds a little bit like, you know, um, Captain Kirk is saying proximity alert or something like that on the bridge of the Enterprise. But, you know, whatever. That kind of thing. My soulmate is near within some kind of distance. And I'm going to follow the tingles until I run into them. <laughs> I mean, that could be kind of trippy. Like you're going to a crime scene and you start getting the tingles, right? Like your soulmate's clothes. Especially for people in law enforcement, that could be really uncomfortable. Well, like the idea that maybe their their soulmate is dead. Or in danger. Or that, yeah. Or or they're a criminal. Or they're a criminal, yeah, because it could be like, you know, Hawaii Five-0. Because you could do something like that with, like, Steve and Tony, like, you know, like Tony's stationed on the island, but they just haven't gotten, you know, he's at NCIS and Steve is, at, you know, he's working closer to the capital. So NCIS's offices in Honolulu are um, not, they're kind of in a kind of an odd location. Um kind of have to do this kind of roundabout thing to get to them. Um, but they could have not just happened to have gotten in proximity um, up until maybe some point, maybe a month or two in. And um, Steve shows up to some kind of like, you know, Yakuza operation or something, and there's a shootout going on, and he starts getting tingles, and he doesn't know who's shooting and why. And is does this mean that, like, his soulmate is one of the Yakuza? Because that would be a really uncomfortable position for him to be in. And then he finds out that NCIS has a presence there, and it's you know, it's, it makes it you know, difficult to agent. shoot anybody in a situation where you're where you've got that spotty sense thing going on. Yeah, it really be difficult because like, who am I shooting? Well, you wouldn't take kill shots. No, on any of them, you wouldn't. Lady Holder's got it. She's a terrible troll. She says, freak him out. The tingle stop because Tony moves out of range. Yeah, and he's like, people, stop shooting. <laughs> but, I mean, that would be really uncomfortable because is my, you know, that would be a little bit of a tense moment. Is my soulmate a criminal kind of thing? Um, but even if, so let's say you don't have the whole mark thing to d- contend with. Um, there would still be, I'm thinking more to the world building, there would still be the whole issue of, um, if you don't have to worry about the touch, but laws would have to, you have to have laws that would be different to protect soulmates. And this, is, again, is the kind of thing, um, my mind is kind of churning here. So you'd have things, you have to account for the certain laws and provisions being different. Homophobia would not be, something that would have existed for very long in society. Because I don't think it would have many... ever existed. I mean, if, if this has been going since the dawn of time, 
literally since man came into the cave, if pairings have been soulmated, gender isn't even a consideration. Shouldn't be. Therefore, I think you could. I think if you wanted to write it in, you could that um, like factions rise and fall quickly that try to impose some kind of you know like you know attribution of soul marks to being of some evil force or whatever and that um i mean you could you could have had that tension in history where people tried to fight against the whole idea of fate or tried to give it some sort of nefarious purpose or origin to what the soul mark the soul bond meant um fanatics running around like some small sect or something like that that um you know, so like the run from the tingles crowd. I don't think they call themselves that. They'd probably be mocked on Facebook using those terms. Um, which is interesting, you know, supposed to, that it, that you're supposed to kind of reject that kind of relationship. Um, I probably would choose to not typically put that kind of tension in the story unless I needed that for as part of the plot, a plot device um, for where my um, antagonist comes from or something like that. But um, yeah, it would it just would never come up. So you know, it would probably be um, just as common to you know, as a kid, you would probably have no way of knowing if your soulmate would be male or female. So there would be no question of trying to pigeonhole your sexual orientation in the way that that we do. When you think about soulmate magic beginning since the the dawn of man, you um you have to um it could change the tone of conflict. Um it would change the tone of social politics. Uh adultery. I think would have a different definition. Yeah. I and agree. coveting somebody else's soulmate would probably be a crime. Trying to separate a soul a, a mated pair mm-hmm. for your own gain. And there are two ways you could play this. You could play this where not everybody gets a soulmate or everybody gets a soulmate. But what about the people whose soulmate dies? Well, I think you'd have, I mean, people would be passing time with whomever until there'd be a lot more casual relationships, right? So people There would be, yeah, a fuck ton of casual relationships. The people whose soulmates had died or people who hadn't met their soulmate would be, you know, or it could be that it's a quite common thing for people who've lost their soulmate to sort of, you know, marry. Um, kind of, you know, once you get past the grieving period, that maybe it'd be something people would find desirable in a, a, par- a partner um, is if you'd lost a soulmate, is maybe it would be desirable to have somebody who had also had that loss. So that if you found a relationship you were happy with or happy in, 
that you um, wouldn't have to worry about losing that person to a, to their soulmate when they found them. Um, you could also do something kind of like um, you have um, kind of if you have a soulmate, and like maybe most people do, you kind of have this sense of anticipation. There's some kind of feeling people have that lets them know that they have a soulmate. And, like, if that feeling suddenly goes away, it means your soulmate died uh, so that people wouldn't be wondering, you know, going into their 50s or 60s, just wondering if they just hadn't run across the person yet. In Hobbit fic, that's often called the longing. If you have a one, you have a longing for your one. Mm-hmm. And those who don't have a one don't have the longing. But if you had the longing, say, for 20 or 30 years and then suddenly it disappeared – you would know that you had nothing left to long for. Which is sad, but better than not knowing. Because it's kind of, there's something about that uncertainty in soulmate stories that sometimes, sometimes I think about the ramification of it. Like people who haven't found gone their whole life searching and they don't ever find the person. That's just really, it's like, do they even know if there exists? Are they putting their life on hold for something that's not even there? Playhole says in the chat room that there's no guarantee that you'll like your soulmate. I think the whole point of having a soulmate is that they're perfect for you. Yeah. That's the whole point. It's not like you've been inexplicably connected to this person for no good reason. There's got to be um, compatibility there. Um, Physical attraction, emotional attraction, intellectual attraction. Otherwise, they're not a mate to your soul. And they could have made life. They could have made life choices that make it difficult for you guys to actually be able to have a relationship. Um, that could be rough if you've got someone who you're very compatible with. I think it could happen that you're like imminently compatible, but somebody went down a somewhat criminal path, and you're a cop, and you're like, okay, our life choices aren't really compatible here. Um, but then there's the question of some people might choose to stop being a cop and their soulmate stop being a criminal, and they go find something else to do. You know, that I mean, some people might... The reward system you were talking about, the the reward of what were the benefits of having a soulmate bond. Um, really, Lana Holder? You don't like your husband sometimes? I... I'm not putting that on the air. Well, you can oh, say it if you no, want to, but I'm, no, not saying it. No, I'm not saying that on no. my podcast. Um, you know, honestly. No, uh, you're lucky to be breathing. Um, calculator, because it is a um, wedding day um, equivalency there. Let's see. That's not accurate. Um, I will have known my husband for 20 years soon. Um, and I can say probably after we started dating, there has been like one or two instances that whole time where I genuinely did not like him. Just two. One or two. Is that terrible? You're all silent and shit. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking. I mean, I, I, the last person I was in a serious relationship with, I think, I think there was one incident the whole time we were together where we really had something happen where I was like, 
I, I'm pondering if I would cross, um, at, you know, if you were on fire to put you out because I, I, I so, I so was not impressed with them in that moment, but I think it was only one, I mean, there have been times, certainly there were times we fought, but it was not, you know, to the level of, of, mm-hmm. Um, I will qualify that and say don't like that, you, except for, except for that one time I could think of. Um, that I love my husband and I like him, but I don't always like his behavior. Yeah, that's it. Speaking of behavior, I was at my mom's house and my sister and her ki- her younger kids were there, and um, the young the middle one he's like twelve now, and. Um, he was doing something that was really annoying to me. And I just, I turned and looked at him. I said, your current behavior is making me deeply unhappy. His eyes got really wide. He, sorry. I said, don't be sorry. Stop doing it. (laughs) Just quit. Just stop. And, And he did. And my sister said, how do you do that? I don't know. But it was making me deeply unhappy. <laughs> I said, well, my unhappiness matters to him. That's what this, that's the message Obviously. here. Obviously. <laughs> but I'm also of the opinion that a 12-year-old shouldn't be have, shouldn't have to be told to do something twice. I called him on that, too. I was like, look. You've already been told to go do this. If my mother has to tell you one more time to do this, I'm taking your little ass home and leaving you with your daddy. I don't care what anybody else has to say about it. <laughs> I will put you in my car and take you back to where to where I think you should be and leave you there. And then you won't get to have dinner with the rest of us. He looked at my sister for support and she just shrugged her shoulders and went back to reading her Kindle. <laughs> Like, I'm not involved in this. <laughs> I'm not in it. That's not my hill. I'm not dying on it. <laughs> you know, in terms of the the benefit thing, I I one of the one of the um some of the world building I did for a soulmate novel um was around the idea of um it's probably risky saying saying this, but it was around the idea of that the soul bond is people who are soul bonded are just better at what they do. If you're smart, you get smarter. If you are, um, you know, if you are mathematically inclined, you're going to be better. If you are athletically inclined, you're going to, you're going to jump a little bit further, run a little bit faster. Soul bonding, you sort of share each other's, it's not, it's not like you share each other's gifts, but you amplify um, your partner's abilities. And so people really seek to be, it's really desirable to have these soul bonded because the best of, in almost every profession are people who have soulmates. So it's highly desirable. Do something, aside from just that, you know, the idea that we, of not being alone, of there being one perfect person for you is a really appealing concept. So that's a big positive. But if it something that you know we tend to take for granted the things that we already know you know the things that are baked into our culture we really take for granted and baked into our lives so I could see people could start to take that kind of concept for granted until they were older and started to feel a little bit alone like okay well 
it's sort of like the whole idea of um, getting married now. It's like, oh, well, I, I got plenty of time. I can get married when I'm 40, 45, 50, whatever. I don't need to do it now, which is fine. People could kind of take, start getting that approach to looking for their soulmate, which is like, oh, I've got plenty of time. I got a lot of shit to do before I want to deal with a soulmate. And so it could be something that could be really taken for granted, not being aware of how precious that connection is. Um, and so it, you could either just, it could either, if it's not enough to have that perfect compliment to you, then you could do the, you know, what is some kind of benefit people get out of being soul bonded? Whether you want to, you could write in, I don't think I would write in a status type thing, like a literal status um, to being um, soul bonded, like it puts you like in a higher social caste or something. But I, my idea was to do kind of a, you just get better at your life, you know, you Silver, think um, that sounds scary. You think that sounds, sounds scary? scary? Me? I'm not scary. I'm precise. And some people find that intimidating, and I don't understand it. I don't, um, him haul and beat around the bush. Well, that's true, too. I am evil. Um, but... You're making me unhappy, I'll tell you. I don't like the way you're speaking. I don't like the way you're looking at me. I don't like the way you're sitting. (laughs) All those things, I will tell you. (laughs) I do give a good gift. I am a good gift giver. Because I pay attention to people and the things that they do and um, the things that they say. And so when you pay attention to people, you know people and you're able to um, get them things that are that are pleasing. Or not, if they're an asshole. I would, I have told a stranger at Walmart that I didn't like what they were doing and to stop it. (laughs) I have totally told, I've totally said that to a stranger at Walmart, at Target, and probably at Kroger, (laughs) or Publix, or any at Costco, at Sam's Club, wherever, Taco Bell. (laughs) I don't appreciate your current behavior is like one of my... I said it so often, people have threatened to put it on a T-shirt. I don't appreciate your current behavior. <laughs> Did Jilly die? Jilly, are you on the phone? Did she mute herself? I think she muted herself. Um, all myself. Yeah, I just muted myself for a second because I was typing. Ah. I don't know. Where were we? What were we talking about? God knows. Um, um, I, t- I told a kid in Target to stop running, and um, his mom said, uh, don't boss my kid around. I said, then control your kid, or I can call, or I can go get security, and he can help you control your kid. 
no 11, 10 year, 11 year old. He, he, this, was, this was not a toddler. This was like a 10 year old running around the store like a fucking lunatic. At the time, I was on a on one of those stupid air cast things. If he had knocked me over, <laughs> like I need another broken bone. Come on now, <laughs> I don't need another broken bone. No, you don't need to get pushed over in the Walmart. <laughs> it wouldn't take much because I'm not as Sturdy. I'm not as steady on my feet as I ever as I ever should have been, and I'm nowhere and I'm nowhere near sturdy. So if I fall, I'm breaking something. Leg, foot, arm, wrist. And y'all don't want to be around me if I break an arm, because then I can't write, and I am not fit for company. <laughs> That'd be terrible. The arm out of commission thing. I had that for. <laughs> I had shoulder surgery, and and my dominant on my. Right shoulder was my dominant hand, and oh, I was, I was miserable. Sprained my wrist a couple of years ago, and it was it, it took a week to heal, and I was just like an ogre, <laughs> not even a fun one like Shrek. <laughs> Harsh, harsh. I called some kid in um, a Walmart about two decades ago a walking hysterectomy. Of course, my nephew at the time was very small. He went home and immediately told everybody that I called some kid a a walking hysterectomy because he couldn't say hysterectomy. (laughs) (laughs) Hysterectomy. My sister said, you call my baby a walking hysterectomy? I said, no, it was somebody else's kid. (laughs) As a teenager, freaking a little willy-nilly with uh, the shopping cart, um, on Target, and um, they ripped one of those glucose monitoring sensors out of my arm, and... uh, I, it, it's not like it's super painful. It just kind of stings when it happens. But That's super expensive. Things, yeah, you can't put those back on. And my doctor charges $100 a piece for them. So I was not impressed. Especially since I had ripped one out, too, taking my bra off. So I was like, oh, great. Another one. Wow. Little asshole. But, uh, okay, soulmate. I like the idea of the getting the soulmate mark after you meet because it's more personal. And there's less regulation and speculation and... I don't know. I think it creates yeah, anticipation if, if you have to wait for intrusive. it. Yeah, it's also a little less intrusive. Like, you don't ever have to... Exposed your mark. You don't mark. have to hide it. Um, you know, you don't have to register with a database to help look for your mark. Um, one trope I find wretchedly heartbreaking is that you have the the last words your soulmate will ever say to you on on your body somewhere. No. No. 
No, and then you just forbid them from ever saying that. And then hold on, Thorne, because the damn eagles were coming. You should have held on. (laughs) No, but I would just... I would just tell my soulmate, you are not ever allowed to say, I'll see you at five. <laughs> just, you'll see me at 5.05. <laughs> just wipe it from your vocabulary. You're not allowed to say these words. I mean, yes, it, and then the day they say them, you know, I mean, it's just because you can't, it, for a lot, the, the thing about phrases, I wonder sometimes, is a lot of phrases, especially greeting and potentially goodbye phrases, are very common. Right. Um, and the first last words thing, um, it's like, how many last words are goodbye? How many last words I'll see you soon? You know, and that that's an everyday type occurrence. And so, I mean, I didn't want them to never say it or you want them to say it every day, you know? I want my last words. I, I, I want my last words to be I love you. But then if you end every conversation with somebody with I love you, I mean, I don't know. It's just uh, the 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 last words thing would just cause me too much anxiety to write it. I wouldn't be able to do it. I think the I think I, the, still, I think if you I wanted your words, I think out. Um, the first words they say to you would be okay. If you what? The first, first words. First words would. But, but I mean, also, you would it have to be like, you have a system. hey, Bilbo. <laughs> you yeah. got fifty thousand people saying hey, Bilbo. But what if it's not the greeting or the end? But what if it's the most important thing your soulmate will ever say to you? That everybody's going to have I love you on. <laughs> well, that's not true. The aliens are Because coming. not everybody I mean, would be... consider those words the most important thing. Duck could be, for a lot of people, you know, could say duck. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the most important thing my husband ever said to me. Or the most, like, the best thing he ever said to me. Um, I don't know. That, you know he has, he's said some really interesting, fun things. <laughs> but he once told me that he wouldn't trade me for anything. That's anything in the nice. world. Yeah. Which is like, not I love you, but it is I love you. It's just it's a different kind. Of course, he also told me once he wouldn't trade me for a buck fifty. So, I guess a buck seventy five is on the table for any of you guys who are interested. <laughs> well, it depends upon the preface of that because he said if I really needed a buck twenty five, I wouldn't trade you for a buck fifty. That's funny. <laughs> I like the idea of the mark appearing. Um, I like the idea of you know the mark appearing later. So I do like the it could appear at first touch, first kiss. First kiss is kind of sweet. Um, so it could be first touch, first kiss. It could be the first time. Um, it could be triggered by um, the energy of each other's orgasm. So it could be something that happens when you have sex the sexual energy when it's released during climax is what triggers the mark to form. I don't know. Um, that would be like, here's the thing. And I came across that, it when I was magic. writing my original fic, um, is that um, Marcus and Riley go into their first sexual encounter, both anticipating something happening 
and dreading how they would feel if it didn't. And I'm not saying what it actually is because I don't want to get into that whole discussion of werewolves and sex and anyway, but um, it did happen, so there was no angst or horror. But if you're living in a real life society where every time you have sex with somebody that you really care about, there's that potential of learning that they are not your soulmate. It would make sex really. No, no, I mean that you would know this. This is the proximity thing <clears throat> that you would you would know who your soulmate was. Oh, oh, okay. But until you know you each not other be. better, and right. So, so I was thinking because in that case of where you already know, um, you know, it'd be a case of then when does the mark form? Is it the first time you touch, kiss? And I just had this idea that maybe it's when that, that something like sort of like sex magic, but you know that whatever happens, you know. When at the at climax, that that sort of release of energy is what causes the the marks to form. Um, I've had this kind of goofy idea of um, that marks can be. I was about to say that marks can be any size, and there's like no, they don't. It doesn't mean anything if one is small or big. It's just that sometimes people try to ascribe meaning to them, but it's just found over and over that it doesn't really mean anything. How, how what marks are there's like a combination of the two personalities and how it manifests on the skin and most people's are contained to an area of the body so I just had this idea of like um, but it is an expression your mark your mark is an expression of your soulmate kind of like you did in in the thing but I just had mm-hmm. this idea that um, like Steve is pretty maybe pretty normal it's on his forearm or something and that like when they have sex like Tony winds up covered. You know, arms, back, legs, butt, covered in like this giant t- series of tattoos, and he's like, "What the fuck is the matter with you?" <laughs> and like instantly pissed off because he's completely covered in salt marks. It's like head to toe, and he's like, "It's not my fault." And he's like, "I'm totally blaming you for the rest of our lives. I'm blaming you." Oh, that would be a perfect phrase for Thorin and Bilbo. I've never been so wrong in all my life. Which is saying something, considering how old he is. <laughs> mhm. That green dress makes your ass look awesome. Yes. <laughs> I actually have a uh, Sentinel um, AU I wrote for Stargate that I started... Um, it's a little different than my other ones and it it was when I was playing around with the Sentinels of Atlantis and, and how I was going to do that um, I, I went through several variants trying to find my my um, I guess my niche niche, how do you say that? niche, niche my niche. spot niche, Although thank some you people say niche, but I think it's niche That's I've heard I it said both ways, but my tongue gets tangled up sometimes. Anyways, I was trying to find my spot. And so I had several ideas going on. And one of them was that Rodney and John came into the Stargate program after the expedition was underway. And they got sent to Atlantis after the fact. And so they're already a bonded pair. And they're in the gym um, working out. And Rodney takes off his shirt. And there is a um, – he has a phoenix covering his whole back tattoo 
And when John reveals his, his is a dragon, and these are their spirit animals. They've got their spirit animals tattooed on their backs. And um, one of the men in the room comments on it, and Rodney tells him that it's not um, that it's not a tattoo. Basically, that they didn't they didn't volunteer to put these things on their bodies. That they appeared when they bonded as a sentinel and guide. Oh. They are biological. They are biologically part of their body. That these are things that surfaced on their backs after, and that's how they figured, that's how they knew what their spirit animals were. Now, in this particular AU that I had plotted out, um, sentinels and guides were shapeshifters, and it wasn't so much that their spirit guide would come visit them, but that they would turn into their spirit guide, that they could shift into the form of their spirit. Because their spirit is just basically a mirror of themselves on the psionic plane. So John could turn into a dragon. And that's how the men on Atlantis learned that their new CO was a fucking dragon. <laughs> that's really cool. But then I didn't do anything with it. Uh, it's, um, I don't know, it was um, too much... I don't know. It just it just wasn't clicking for me. I'm, I might go back and play with it and see, see what I can do with it. But it, but it, at the time, it just wasn't clicking. I I, I had this. Um, sometimes you have an idea that's almost too big for what you plot. Mhm. And I think my world building was too big for what I had plotted, and it, I was like, Ugh. so I tried to tweak it, and but it just it just fell apart for me. Yeah, I've had that happen where I've plotted a story and I wanted to put some kind of element to something to it, and then the world building was enormous. It's like, you know, I'm plotting a 10,000-word story, and I've got world building that could support, like, you know, three 200,000-word novels, and it just feels odd. I, it, I don't know. I don't know if it's so – I just kind of, like, okay, something else. It's like but a then I did the kind one. of dissonance that I can't yeah. quite wrap my head around. But then I did one where Rodney was on Atlantis and John was on Earth when he came online. And um, they bring him back to Earth to meet John because he's the only um, match that John has in the system. But I didn't like that either. Um, it felt like, you know, that Rodney didn't get a choice. After I started writing it, in the plotting, it was obvious it, to me that Rodney came back to Earth because he wanted to. But when I was writing, it it, it didn't feel that way. It, it started to feel like he didn't have any options. Um, so and that kind of threw me off, and so um, I let that go. And then I ended up writing Sentinels of Atlantis. You know, no bad thing there. Um, Sentinel <laughs> guys. Sentinel and Guide in itself is kind of, the way most people write it, is in a, in a way um, sort of a soulmate trope of its own. Um, some people don't write the sort of one one match thing, and it kind of goes in a different direction. But I think, I think one of the most common ways to write the Sentinel Guide trope is to write it as sort of a, a reimagination of the soulmate thing. Um, people could do between Sentinel and Guide or what they have done between Sentinel and Guide um, stuff and what they have done. So in some ways, if people are struggling with, like, 
if they've read the Sentinel Guide story and they are struggling with building a soulmate universe, you might be able to leverage some of the work you've done in the world building for your Sentinel Guide universe. In Sentinels of Atlantis, they um, pairings find each other through proximity. They have meet and yeah. greets that the center arranges, but sentinels and guides find each other through through meeting, through physical like through physical meeting. You know, it's oh hey, there you are. I've been looking for you. <laughs> yeah. Where the fuck have you been? <laughs> One of my favorite scenes I ever wrote for Sentinels of Atlantis is when Anne Teldy finds her her um her guide and Allison tells her they want you to start down there on that end and pick one of those guys. And she's like, I'm starting right here. (laughs) This is where I'm starting. I'm starting right here. (laughs) And I really, I really like that, that um, the idea that there was no question for her. Yeah. When she walked into that room and she saw Allison, she was like, hell yeah, that's mine. (laughs) You know? And I, and I, and I really like that. Um, scene when I wrote it and I hadn't even actually intended on posting that um, scene anywhere it was just for my own um, sometimes I write stuff for just me that that, um, that are attached to my stories that are just scenes that I kind of keep envisioning in my head and in order to get it out of my head I write it um, but I really didn't intend on um, sharing that but then someone asked about it and I was like well you know okay I'll um, I'll show you what I did and so And I'm sure they were incredibly grateful. We all are. The, um, <laughs> I, yeah, the, the, sometimes you get a scene, you've got to get it out of your head. Um, and sometimes I get a scene, like, before I'm even fully plotted on a story, I get a scene in my head, and, like, i got to get it out. i got to get it written down. And if, sometimes those scenes don't ever fold back into the story because sometimes the writing is just – I find some people write and they stitch things together, and I've tried that approach before. But often I find that there's like little inconsistencies in tone when that happens. Um, and then I have to, I have to really write to feel like I'm confident in what I've done. I have to write really linear, linear, linearly. So when things are kind of written piecemeal, um, a lot of times that original scene that I wrote uh, out of order doesn't make it back into the story at all, or it doesn't make it back in. I, I usually I, you wind up like with a 50% of it rewritten to make it match. Um, but sometimes you still got to get it out. You know, you just got to go, okay, so it's out of my head. It's in my brain. It's got to come out. And a lot of times, even if I can't salvage the structure around it, I can sometimes salvage the dialogue. But it's really rare. I think it may have only happened once that like the majority of the scene that was written out of order made it back into the story intact. But a lot of times they never make it at all. It's just like, well, now now I know how that happened, but it didn't wind up being important to the story. It's kind of sad. It's like that was so that was so in my head I had to know. And it's not actually very important. I think my head canon for Steve and Tony meeting in NCIS, if Tony was part of um NCIS Pearl Harbor, um, would be Steve sitting in an interrogation room. And Tony walking in and putting the folders down and sitting down and said, dude, why did you drive a truck onto our ship? <laughs> <laughs> lay it out for me, Garrett. Just, just lay it out. 
Because he might be in the reserves, but at some point he would have had to have answered that question. Because he might have immunity and means on that island, but he still would have had to explain to the Navy what the fuck he was doing. <laughs> there would be an explanation there. Because he's still in the Navy. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's I mean, it, the, the crime was on, because the Chinese would be asked, because I think it was a Chinese freighter, they would be demanding that it be investigated. Um, the Chinese would be demanding that it be investigated. Hello? Do you guys hear me? I hear you. Did I mute somehow? Hello? I can hear you. I can't hear you, Jilly. At all. Did you mute yourself? No, I did not mute myself. I've been sitting... Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> Hold on. Can you hear me now? I think everybody else can hear me. I can't hear can her me. at all. I can't hear her at all. That's so weird. Okay, I'm gonna. Okay. Man, this letter that I'm going to write to Blog Talk keeps getting longer and longer and longer and longer. That's good. Um, <clears throat> can you hear me now? I can, hear, I can hear you now. Yeah, I can hear yeah. noise in the background, too. Yeah. It was all gone. But I, Early in you talking about Sentinels and Guys, I was reminded of a story, um, and it's a story, um, Blair, who has been um, living with Jim, um, decides that they're not ever going to bond as Sentinel and Guide, because apparently Jim is straight, so that's just not going to happen. So he starts compiling a list of potential women to take his place, and he gives he gives Jim these files. And Jim is like, I've already got a guy. I don't need another guy. And he's like, it's just not working out for us, Jim. You're just not connecting with me the way you should. And um, Blair's trying to talk around it without actually saying, you're not nailing me, so I don't think we're going to actually be end up being a pair here. And so he keeps trying to hand Jim these files from these women. And finally, Blair just tells him, and he's like, look, we're just not compatible. You're you're just not interested in it bonding with me and Jim finally figures out what bonding actually means and takes care of that (laughs) (laughs) oh shoot now I need to read I never read that one (laughs) I had a lot of sentinel stories back in the day but I missed that one and Jim's like wait you mean you can't be my guy because I haven't slept with you I can fix that It's a little more involved in that, but that's basically what it boiled down to is that Blair figured out that they weren't ever going to get it on, and um, he wasn't really the right guide for Jim. So he's trying to be a bro. He's trying to set him up, you know. He has all these women, including Megan, um, in these files. It's just great. It was, it was so much good stuff. It would. It was on Prospect. 853 or whatever it was, Prospect. So it will be on AO3 because AO3 absorbed Prospect. Yeah, that's... Lighthorse, yeah. The open door. 
the stuff that comes into the open doors policy is really hard to search through. Yeah, it is. I wish I made it a little bit more integrated. It would have been somebody quite popular in the Sentinel fandom because I didn't read... um, I was very careful in the Sentinel fandom because there were lots of themes and tropes in the Sentinel fandom that were really popular that made me deeply uncomfortable. Um, you know, the slave AUs and the and the the consent issues, and um, it might be yes that, yeah, maybe Delmere, um, because or or Polly because I I, I didn't read authors. Um, I learned very quickly who I could and could not trust um, as far as content went. Um, in that respect, because uh, a lot of times they would just, and there, there would be no warnings, and they would just come out of the blue, and you, holy shit, I did not see that coming. Click, <laughs> click, 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 turn off browser. Why aren't you Firefox shut? <laughs> Firefox would get hung up. You'd be sticking there looking at it right thick for five minutes while it was doing its thing. Once like, I got so frustrated, I rebooted my computer to get, to get to get away from it. But um, so I was very particular about what I read in the um, Sentinel fandom. So it wouldn't have been it would have been, although I hate to use the term, it would have been a big name fan um, who wrote it because I doubt seriously I would um, wouldn't stick out in my brain the way it did it because I don't I didn't read them all the others. And that sounds so snotty and rude, but I don't mean it to be. I just have to be very careful with my own mental health, and that's my responsibility. And I'm not putting it off on a different author. But in order to do that, in some fandoms where warnings are not popular, you have to make a list of people that you don't read because they don't because they don't warn, and apparently really enjoy making their readers deeply uncomfortable and giving them nightmares. So I'm not trying to be an asshole about it. I'm just saying that there was there were a lot of people in the Sentinel fandom that I could not read because of their content. I encountered the same problem in um, Teen Wolf. Although they normally um, warn in Teen Wolf. Sometimes the warnings are horrific. Yeah, the problem with Teen Wolf is that the warnings of a lot of times are buried in a tag wall and you miss it. It's like the warning right. is there, but you know, it's in amidst 178 tags. And you thought that by the time you got to hoodies and um, couch sex, that you were safe from the warnings and you weren't. Nope. Not at all. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I think um, the Sentinel fandom had a really dark underbelly. I guess is one way to put it. Mm-hmm. And um, there was some there was some really ugly stuff in that fandom. Um, the slave they used, and I'm so, you know I'm not even sorry if you write slave fic. What the fuck's wrong with you? 
Well, really, what the fuck's wrong with you? Yeah, we don't need none of that. It's not entertaining. It's not sexy. And if you think it's sexy, go get you a fucking therapist right now if you think slavery is sexy. And I mean outright slavery. I don't mean sex games in a BDSM dungeon where you pretend you're a sex slave. I mean actual slavery AUs where people owned other people legally with papers and shit. (laughs) It wasn't a pretense of slavery. It was outright slavery. And if you think that is sexy... I think you're disgusting. And I'm not sorry. I'm not even going to pretend I am. Anyways. Um, it, if you go over to Slash World, Joss, I've got some Sentinel um, recommendations. Stuff that I've read that I enjoyed um, that won't be mean to you. There are a few authors, yeah, you can probably read pretty safely, but still, with any time, um, sometimes even authors I really trust in general um, will kind of go a different direction than I expect. Um, but, yeah, always pay really close attention to the warnings. If they don't have warnings, make sure that somebody you know has recommended that story. the chat room refresh one of the stories that I really enjoyed is a set of, a set of stories it's an AU it's um, the ritual series by oh my god it fell out of my head Now, when you're on Slash World, you do need to keep in mind that not every rec on Slash World is recommended by me. There are people, there are other people on Slash World who wreck, um, but they're all required to give warnings for things that I think are fucked up, whether the author warns for them or not. Um, so there's that. Uh, but I will say that there are. Um, If you've never read The Ash and the, the the Oak and the Ash by Sunrider, take your ass to AO3 and read that right now. You yeah. don't need the podcast to go do that. <laughs> That's the Sentinel AU with The Hobbit. Fucking outstanding. I am so serious. It doesn't get any better than The Oak and the Ash. It's really, really good. Um, Murder by Ritual by Chrisser. Um, and it's on the um, list of Sentinel wrecks on Slash World. 
one of the things I think is interesting about the Sentinel fandom is I think, because I was reading in that fandom while the show was still on the air. And, of course, things were in very small archives back then. Um, so you didn't have these central repositories. And even I was a really late comer to fanfiction.net. Um, I was definitely not on that site in its infancy. But um, there, I think the Sentinels and Guides and Known AU, which is really like the most appealing kind of Sentinel story for me, um, were sort of late coming into that fandom. Um, they weren't super popular at first. People were really trying to play with some degree of canon compliance and sticking in in the framework set up by the show um, and working with the events of the show, which meant keeping the whole secret thing and um, you know, Jim's the only sentinel. Uh, um, I would say the majority of the pure sentinel fandom, where you're not looking at a fusion or a crossover, um, are are not sentinels or known AUs, I don't think. I think that they're mostly um, within the confines of, of the canon structure. I'm sitting here looking at sentinel authors. Yeah, I'm distracted. Okay, I'm going to undistract myself. <laughs> and I've lost the chat room again. Ready to go. When I can't find the chat room, what it actually means is I've got too many tabs open. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these on on um um Uh, it, 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 over on Slash World, a lot of them are crossover AUs. Nothing wrong yeah, with that. I love, I, lo- I love me some crossover AU. That's actually mostly what I read anymore. Because um, I guess I felt like I, I got my, my um, um, fix of Pure Sentinel stories way back when. Um, another, there's a different spin on the, I don't, it might be recommended on Slash World, but I don't think so. Um, there's a different spin on <clears throat> um, sort of the Sentinels coming out of the closet thing. It was done by Lady Rock. It may not be everybody. It's really well done. It's called the Sentinel School Verse. Um, and it sort of is, I think, the first book in the series, like called The Gathering of Sentinels or something. And that's kind of the idea of is that Sentinels would start kind of coming online once enough of them had gotten together. Uh, and it, the difference is, is, I think, if you have a very you know, um, specific way, you look at the Sentinel Guide Bond, it may not be for you because she has platonic bonds and brothers and sisters can be um, um, Sentinel Guide. So if your head canon is very that it's a, a sexual kind of bond, it, it may not be a good fit. But if you don't have that, you know, a fixed head canon about that, it's a really, and of course, every, you know, anything Lady Rock writes is really well written and and well thought out. So, and it's also got, uh, um, so it starts off purely Sentinel, and then it folds in um, Stargate later on. So that's if if you don't like, if you don't have a fixed head canon about the Sentinel Guide thing, you might check out Lady Ra's stuff on um, that story should be on AO3, the Sentinel, the Sentinel school verse. Yeah. Lady Ra is amazing in general. So, you know, you can count on, on her stories being um, well done if, if they fit into 
your preferences for how you see the Sentinel Guide thing. Because um, she's written several Sentinel. She's written now. She's also got some really good Sentinel stories, purely Sentinel stories. So any of her purely Sentinel stories, those are all very good. Um, Scorpions is um, a crossover with uh, Stargate SG-1, and that's exceptional. I highly recommend that. Um, the story that I was talking about where Blair decides that Jim needs a new um, guide because this sex thing isn't working out um, is called uh, Choosing Guides, and it's by Josephine Darcy. So it wasn't who I thought it was. I, I was, had somebody specifically in mind who wrote this, and I I put a link on the um, chat room, but it's available on AO3. If you look up Choosing Guide, Choosing Guides, it's like the first hit you get. It's a, it's a little under 10k, and it is explicit. And there is um, Blair tries to take a very technical, scientific approach to the sex, so that might put you off. But Jim's not having that either. <laughs> he eventually is like, "No, dude, this is not how this is going to work. This is, you need to." <laughs> Anyways, that that stuck out in my head when when she was talking earlier about um, sentinels and guides and um, the right guide and Blair deciding that he wasn't the right guide and Jim was having none of that and it's it's a cute story, <clears throat> a little scientific at some points, or a little not scientific I guess it's the wrong term um, clinical. Uh, Blair's trying to be clinical about um, sex bonding, um, I guess just to get himself through it because he doesn't think that Jim really wants it or him. Anyways, it's good. I enjoyed it. <clears throat> and um, stop muting yourself. And uh, we're I'm not do... muting. I haven't, been mu- I haven't been muted. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were muting because you were typing or something. Are you reading? No, I did that. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I lost the thread on the plotting like, I don't know, 20 minutes ago. I have like no idea. So you would, um, if you were in a contemporary fandom like NCIS or, or Hawaii Five-O, you would choose a biological imperative or biological method of, of soulmate bonding. Biological. Well, it's possibility. I mean, like, like, as, what do you mean, as opposed to what? Well, you know, cause, I mean, you, like, know you can look at, you know, magical elements and fantasy situations, but in a contemporary setting where there's no magic, um, sex bonding implies um, the exchange of um, genetic material. Well, I mean, I think that when you, anytime you're dealing with like a soulmate situation, there's, even if you aren't really dealing with a... Um, I mean, assuming that you're using biology to create the bond, which, yeah, probably. Um, if you're in a contemporary fandom that has soulmates, you've kind of got something implicitly going on that is supernatural in nature. 
even if even if the world just accepts it because it's always been that way and nobody questions how it happens, which somebody at some point is going to question it. Um, it's not just a strictly uh, – there's, there's an implicit element there that allows the soulmate thing to happen. Fate, destiny, magic, life, energy, I don't – but whatever you – however you work it out, there's something mystical going on. Otherwise, there wouldn't be just one person in all the world, right? Right. If it's just a bio, purely biological thing, then you could have the many potential people you could form a bond with. You find the one you're most compatible with. Then you, you know, swap DNA or whatever. And um, – Yeah, but I don't. I mean, I don't know that I would. Um, I don't think I would. I, I don't think it'd be like a swapping a DNA type thing. Otherwise, I guess the moment you kiss the first time would be the moment you would have the DNA swap. Because um, if you're doing it based on kind of like a something that happens, like with life energy, sort of whether you call it psionic energy or what, whatever the term is, like how mm-hmm. that energy is transmitted between people um that mm-hmm. is a little bit more mystical than biological mm-hmm. although it would also be fun to do something um deeply scientific yeah that could be different but but that would be something new in society right yeah i don't think you could have something deeply scientific that had been there forever no but um Unless you have what thought were mystical rituals that are actually science figures out what they actually are and figures out the science of it, like people who want to have a soul bond. You know, you went to some Greek god's temple and you prayed for the favor of the gods. And you, the priest would give you a couple of flowers and you would grind them up and exchange the, the essence of these flowers or something, and then science finds out later that these flowers create some kind of chemical reaction that allows you people who then touch or kiss or whatever to create a bond between them. And they figure out a more um, efficient way of doing the soul bond. Uh, So I think that you could have science debunking soulmate magic. um, Kind of unromantic, but (laughs) you could do that. I had this idea. Um, several years ago, an original fiction idea, um, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to write as as Kira for original fiction before I wrote the werewolf book, um, I had this idea of, of writing um, a um, a science fiction um, because you know Stargate, and that's really my base for as far as my readers go is, is science fiction, paranormal, fantasy. So I was thinking of different avenues that I could take, and one of them was um, a space exploration. Um, and one of the things that they did is that, um, they sent out, um, ships from earth to person crews, uh, in various directions. And my two characters wake up, um, basically a thousand years after they left earth, they've been in stasis this whole time. And they, um, are bonded through technology through nanotechnology um, and it allows them to, to work the ship, but it also keeps them um, 
mentally stable. Because they're really essentially never alone. So it keeps them from having um, issues with isolation and all that stuff. Anyway, they were paired together on Earth through compatibility tests. They wake up. It's the first time they've ever met. Because they were paired when they were in stasis. But then I never, never did anything with it. It's not really a soulmate bond situation, but it's um, it's a matter, I guess, of being kindred. Um, and uh, they're out there exploring the universe in pairs, and there are dozens of them. And the pairing that I applauded um, is two men, because that was um, the target audience as well. Um, is that uh, they start processing the data that's come from Earth and they discover that um, essentially uh, that even if they could go home, there's nothing to go home to. Ouch. So. Harsh, I know. But I think- it is hard. I like the idea of a scientifically created bond that they've got there because kind of any, you could kind of expand the soulmate trope to kind of be any, explore any kind of um, bond between people. I mean, it's kind of all in the same wheelhouse. And so a scientifically it's, created bond is, is really different way to approach that. It's meant to be a working relationship to um, allow them to support each other. Um but they're all they're all they're they're all by their by themselves in the middle of the universe, basically, um, exploring. And um, it just so happens that these two are men. Well, a lot of the pairings are not male and female. So um, what it boils down to is that they eventually learn that the powers that be on Earth knew that something catastrophic was ha- coming their way, and so. They purposefully designed this mission to spread humanity. The idea is the science, the technology. And so there are thousands of these ships that were sent from Earth. And most of them are male-female pairings in order to spread the species. But not all of them. And I thought I might write a sequel where they try to find the other pairs. I, I, I never did anything with it. But um, it, it's intriguing. But it's cool. Sometimes it's cool it, world building. I pick it up in the back of my mind sometimes and play with it. I think I just got a plot bunny. <laughs> so you you gave me three on, last night, so on. I'm not even mad. <laughs> it's tan. It's tan. It's not. It's not really what. But what you. It's sort of tangential to what you were saying. Because as you were talking, I was thinking about um, scientifically created bonds. And there's um, a movie. It isn't. I would say it's not the best movie in the world. It's very entertaining, but it's not exactly a great film. Um, that bond, the bond becomes an unintended consequence of the technology, which is Pacific Rim, which is where they get two people who that need to drive these movie. giant machines. I, I find it very entertaining, but it, it really it's got it's got so many problems. But anyway. Um, I just watch it and like tune out the, the issues of it. Um, 
Although I have to admit, I'm, the sequel looks ridiculous. It's just completely stupid. I'm very disappointed I'm looking, in all the trailers. I'm looking forward the to the sequel. sequel, too. I expect it to be just but, stupid. I expect it to be dumb, well, but I'm really going to enjoy it. Uh, uh, when I see the sequel, all I, all I see is, I, I'm like, this is, looks like the Transformers meets the Power Rangers. I'm not interested. But we'll see. But, no, so there's this concept for people who haven't seen Pacific Rim, so they have these giant robots that one person cannot kind of interface with, and they call them the drivers. They can't drive it on their own. They need two people who are um, neurally compatible in order to drive these giant machines. And it creates, um, they call it drifting. They go into drift together, and they operate kind of as one person when they're driving these machines. But it creates this kind of thing that can happen with them, people, which is they call it ghost drift, which is where they start to drift outside of the, the I have to pause um, because thing. I have to get my dog. But um, keep going. Okay. So we have this, they have this idea of, so if you look at the idea of ghost drift, um, so the bunny I got was, so she was talking about, Kira was talking about scientifically created bonds, and the ones she was talking about were created deliberately. And so then I got to thinking about um, Pacific Rim, which you have this sort of a bond, it's not exactly a bond, but sort of a bond that is created accidentally. Um, and the movie doesn't explore the whole ghost drift thing very much, if at all. It's just sort of like a mention. Um, and But it's basically, it creates, you're very intimately connected to the person that you drift with. And I was thinking about, you know, the bunny kind of, kind of has gotten this idea about taking that whole idea of drifting and the unintentional bond and applying it in another circumstance where you have something like... Um, I'm not sure the context yet because it wouldn't. I wouldn't want to re-explore Pacific Rim with different characters because that's kind of not interesting. But something a little bit more contemporary where people create a neural connection and they go into it knowing that they might get this bond as a side effect of this neural connection, and so you kind of have to go in prepared that it might be. This has to be somebody you're extremely compatible with because you might wind up with this sort of mental connection to this person that for the rest of your life. So I was thinking about how to apply that. I've got kind of like this vague outline of an idea in my head. I'm, the, the issue is the circumstances under which you would need this kind of connection. But you could even do it with something like a Stargate Atlantis kind of thing where like in order to control and drive Atlantis, you have to have two people sitting in the chair, in two different chairs, um, and that it creates an un, um, an unexpected um, bond between them because of the neural connection, kind of that ghost drift thing. That was kind of the bunny that kind of crept up and bit me on the butt. I just don't have a full vision of the plot at this point. Well, I, I'm not talking about Chair, chair porn. Um, but I am all aboard that chair porn fic because, damn. Have you read that? I have not read the chair porn, no. In order to use the weapons chair to fight the race, John has to have sex in the chair. 
And I'm not sure if the city picks John Rodney or if John picks Rodney or if the city just ships it. I don't know. But either way, it ends up being a Rodney in his lap in the chair. Mm. And they use sex to power the chair. I know. <laughs> it's almost as great. It's great. It's like that thick I read where um, Bilbo seduces Thorn while he's sitting on the throne. <laughs> the actual throne. Yeah, I think you mean Erebor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have not read that, but it 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 uh, the idea of of, uh, of Bilbo just kind of crawling into his lap when he's in a you know when he's sitting on the throne is kind of interesting. <laughs> so I'll have to noodle. I'll, I'll have to noodle on this sort of you know using Grimm as a kickoff for the world building for something more contemporary. In my Spartan fic, I tether um, um, Spartans and their engineers through um, nanotechnology and nano implants to create a um, mental presence for Spartans, um, even if their engineer is not with them or their engineer isn't in their suit. Their engineer is always with them mentally, to in, in a bra- in a background way, not telepathic way, but. Um, it was my response to because in the original Halo, um, Spartans were raised from basically toddlerhood. They were stolen and modified and and trained to be soldiers. And they're very good soldiers. Some of them lived their whole lives in armor. The problem is, is that um, when I thought about it and I thought about how um, to make it a more ethical situation, you know, John going into the Spartan program and being a Spartan, he would have done it as an adult, and which meant that he was used to a level of um, physical intimacy and physical contact that he would not get in an environmentally closed suit. And I thought about the ramifications of that for the human experience and how I could um, negate that skin starvation that you would get. Mm-hmm. You know, even someone who doesn't like to be touched would be skin starved if they spent three or four weeks in a suit like that. Oh, yeah. And um, even with modification. So I was thinking about how to do that, and that's how I came upon the, the tethering, which is very similar to what I do with um, Sentinels and Guides and, and Bonds. Um, but, it, I, but I wanted it to be technology-based, scientific, rather than some kind of mystical thing. And so John and Rodney are tethered um, for the first time together in Pale Horse. And uh, John comes into the Stargate program as the first Spartan. I think John would be, uh, John's going to be, well, I read read the Pale Horse extra, it's great. Um, He's going to be a kick-ass Spartan. One of the more interesting things about, um, Dart, have you played um, Halo Reach? 
one of the more interesting scenes, cut scenes in Halo Reach is one of the Spartans, George, calls Dr. Halsey. And Dr. Halsey was the progenitor of the Spartan program, and she trained and created them and made their armor and everything. He called her mom. I was like, that is heartbreaking. Here's this woman who stole him from his family and modified him and turned him into a cyborg, basically. Turned him into a one-man war machine, and he's calling her mom. Out of all the scenes in in, in in Halo Reach, which is actually, I think, my favorite movie, um, game of all the Halo games, it was heartbreaking. I was like, oh, God. Not even when my character died was I as emotionally struck in the chest as I was when George called her mom. I was like, no, George, that's not your mama. <laughs> George needs therapy. George went out like a boss, though. George went out thinking he saved the world. Should we all be so lucky? But, um... <clears throat> It's a, it's a good game. It's a good game. But, um, yeah, so uh, going into that Spartan AU and trying to figure out how to, to make that work for me in a way that was um, – that allowed me to create um, intimate relationships for the Spartans because just the idea of, of them being so isolated and, and being used that way and not being allowed to have their families. And I was like, I just can't. I just can't deal with that, so – yeah, I think that's one of the things about um, sort of some of the fandoms that have like some bleak concepts to them, like Halo, is you do have to find a way to address the things that make you really uncomfortable um, so that, you know, adjust the world building or whatever to, to get around the things that would normally stand in your way. Because conceptually, Halo's a little, you know, it's pretty bleak, so... Yeah, um, at least from the Spartan side of it. So it's not, it's not, would not be an easy thing for um, some people. It would be easy for me to get into it, right? So I'd have to do like, you know, the thing which you did, which is kind of adjust things so that it's not so, um, so that it doesn't make me sad all the time. Cause I don't want my writing to make me sad. That's not right. the goal. That's not my goal ever. That's why I don't like to read angst. I don't like to write it, and I always write it happily ever after, and I don't enjoy character death. Um, it's because I want to be happy. Right. I think when I kill a character, it's because I had no choice. Unless they're a right. bad guy, and then, you know. Who cares? Well, let's not count you know, Dr. Lowell, because that was just something different. But you, t- you killed bad guys, because bad guys were They were all bad guys. Usually if they, get kicked. they were all bad guys. Which so, reminds me but, of that scene in True Lies where she asked him, Harry, have you ever killed anybody? And he was like, yes, but they were all bad people. They were all bad people. And he, wasn't he in a truth, truth serum at the time? Yeah. <laughs> he truly believes that they were all bad people. That he's only people. ever killed bad people. That's great. Yeah, I mean, you, I can write a sad scene, but I don't want to write a sad story. And so it's really hard. Um, I've read stories that are set in universes where the world itself is, like, intrinsically sad. And the story may be kind of maybe nice, and the story itself has aspects of what you would call a feel-good story. But it still kind of always leaves me feeling, like, fundamentally sad because 
like I'm thinking about the consequences of the people who are off screen or what's going to happen to them tomorrow or whatever it is. And so, you know, when it comes to the world building itself, having a flaw of something, not, it's not a flaw because it's not a flaw to be sad, but for me, that's a, that'd be a sadness is a flaw in world building for me to work with. Um, I, w- I would have to do tweaks to make it, um, so that I wasn't made sad by my whole story. It's the same thing with soulmate tropes. There's some soulmate tropes, you know, um, make me, we just fundamentally just kind of make me sad. Like the whole idea of having like, <clears throat> I read one variation of the countdown thing. Um, I kind of actually tried to really hard to block this out where you've got two two timers and one's a timer Till you find your soulmate, and one's a timer till you lose your soulmate. And the timer till you lose your soulmate is not—it's not clear if it's your death or their death. Um, but intrinsically, that's really sad because what if they're really close together? What if those timers are the same practically? And what if you're cruising along in your life, and you've got this countdown timer to death? Is it your death or their death? I mean, you're walking around in those last day trying to make the most of it, not knowing what's about to happen. I mean, it's just the world building made me so sad I couldn't get past it. It's the idea that <laughs> um, you're a doctor and you meet your soulmate when they're on the table in front of you. And you, and you go oh, into God. it knowing that they're going to die. Yeah. You touch, you know, this is your soulmate. Your countdown timer says you've got two hours. That's ugly. That's yeah. author sadism just, right there. Good job, though, author. author sadism. Great, great so world I, building. I can't, I'm not reading it, but great world building. Though, and so the author did not actually write all these sad elements. They wrote people who were going to have a long time together. But all I could think about was the implications of this, and I was so sad I couldn't proceed. I think it was like a good sad story, you know, Um and I have like two or three go-to stories that fundamentally have a happy ending, but they have a very difficult journey on the way. And I get my good cry, and then I move on, and I read something that makes me happy again. But when it comes to my writing, I just don't want to be, you know. So that's, so when I kind of move away from a trope, it's not like I'm saying that that's a bad trope, or I say I wouldn't work with that trope because of this reason. That's just because of the kind of writing I prefer to do. I don't. I would not incorporate elements that basically are going to lead me down a path that's sad world not no sad plot no sad world i need both i need i need a world where my characters can be happy and um that i can write a, a fundamentally happy ending story for them in so i just don't want uh to build a world where all i can think about is i've made two people happy but you know six billion are miserable <laughs> And they blew up the Earth on their way to Mars. <laughs> Maybe Earth deserved it. I don't know. But, you know, so. There was that one science fiction show where there's a, there's a people there's those people on a space station, and one morning they wake up and the Earth is gone. That's sort of like a, a that's sort of like the next, that's sort of like leveling up Night of the Comet. 
Yeah. Which I fucking love. I do too. But it's a freaky concept, the idea you wake up and the earth is gone. Everybody's gone. Or the earth is gone. Or Where did we put the earth? Wasn't it outside that window when we went to bed? Shouldn't it still be there? <laughs> Weren't we in orbit? Um, I mean, that's a freaky idea. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dark Sharkina says she's made herself cry writing a sad scene, so she can't imagine, like, writing angst sick because she'd never <laughs> finish and fall die of dehydration. Exactly. It's like one scene can kind of destroy you. So writing a whole, like, novel-length story that just rips your guts out could be, you know, apocalyptic. Story for... in my work in progress called The Apprentices, and it's about Harry um, embracing his magic as a parcel mouth after second year and Dumbledore um, while he's been dismissed from the school um, instead of, you know, doing whatever he did in canon, he he took himself off and found a teacher for Harry and his parcel magic. So he brings Hiro Ito back to um, um, Britain to teach Harry um, and he becomes Harry's guardian and, uh, there's a scene where they've they've found out that Sirius is actually innocent, but the Ministry is still looking for him. So Harry goes on the wireless, and he does an interview talking about um, Sirius and what happened with the Ministry and all that stuff. And then there's a part where the host asks him if you know, did you want to say something to your grand, you know, to your Godfather? Do you want to speak to him? And so Harry does, and I made myself cry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hmm. Terry, talk, Terry talking about how you're the only family I've got left, so you need to be safe. And so I made I made, I made myself cry, and I was like, "Damn it, <laughs> I have to go sit down somewhere." <laughs> Dark. <laughs> I told you I have hundreds. Maybe it's not hundreds. I I never actually added them up for real. I mean, I've done estimates and stuff. She says in the chat room that my tagline should be, I have a story. Your work in progress folder is a Mary Poppins bag of fandom. <clears throat> story that's actually on EAD that I have not finished. It's only like a thousand words from being done. And it's called One More Day. Um, and it's about a John who travels back in time to save McKay's life. And the device he uses killed him. He's still alive in the fic. He hasn't died yet, but he's going to die. And I just haven't written the ending. Because <laughs> I can't make Well, some endings it. you don't want to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have over 200, yeah. I mean, but I don't have a specific number because I've added more since that day. So I'd say between 2 and 250. And that's just what I've actually started, not what I've plotted, because I've got like 10 composition notebooks covered um, front to back. Of ideas and plots and stuff like that, just for fandom. 
Yes, I do. <laughs> but, you know, I was thinking I'll just make John a sin, and then that way it won't hurt my feelings so bad. <laughs> that would be the solution, yeah. Yeah, that would be terrible. But there's this song called One More Day by um, Diamond Rio. It's a country song. And um, he's talking about what he would do if he had one more day with the person that he loves. Um, And I was like, that's just a really beautiful, sad thing. But what can I do with that? And I was inspired by that song. Um, And I was like, well, I can't actually kill one of them. That's just not on. But I could kill a version of but then I wrote it, and I couldn't actually kill the version of him either. So I, I actually plotted the whole thing so I could be comfortable letting – and I'm going to tell you something else. In Hold My Coffee, having the alternate versions of Mer- Meredith and John die made me deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and I cried writing that scene, actually, where Meredith died, the older version of Meredith, Alt McKay. I cried writing it. <laughs> That was very uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's still scared to death. It's still killing yeah. your unicorn. Um, I um, I did I did plot and and um, start a story where Tony died early in the story, and I got through writing his death, and then I couldn't deal with it anymore because for me, it was like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I torturing um, myself this, this way? There was no, there was no good place. There was, it wasn't going to end well. It, that wasn't in the plot. The plot was not about it ending well. Um, it was one of those rare gen fics that I plotted because um, I, I plotted that Tony died fairly early on in um, Gibbs' hiatus, um, and uh, and what I what I plotted was that in the aftermath of his death, that Tony actually has a lot of friends and law enforcement and stuff, and like no one was putting up with that shit. So there was a deep, like you know, NCIS got an anal probe over his death, and it kind of brought down a huge portion of the agency. Um, Tony dying because of, they found all this corruption and stuff that was wrong in the agency. But I mean, it just it was kind of um, it was kind of a. I don't know. It must have plotting. It must have met some need I had at the time. I don't really know what was going on with me that I felt the need to plot that and then start writing it. But by the time something in NCIS pissed you off a lot, was that around? Yeah, a lot. Was that was that like a post Dead Air pick for you? (laughs) Had you watched Dead Air recently? (laughs) I don't think so. Not recently. I mean, could have been something I. Maybe I don't know because it it was but it was just so. Um, I stopped writing around the point that Gibbs was notified of Tony's death, and um, I just I was, I was like, why am I torturing myself like this? What am I doing? I killed my unicorn. I can't go on. I had to stop. Um, I tell you what, one of my favorite NCIS fics is a post um, is a dead air fit where Tony dies, and Gibbs. Uh, Retires from NCIS and goes back to Stillwater. It's a very good story. It's heartbreaking, but it's very good. Is that the you one know what I'm talking about, don't you? He, yeah, it's the one where he buries Tony next to Kelly. Yeah. 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 I know exactly what yeah. you're talking about. And Tony's father eventually comes to Stillwater looking for his inheritance. Um, 
only to find that he doesn't have one because he didn't meet the requirements of the will. You know, like showing up for his own son's fucking yeah. funeral. <laughs> and it was months, months later. Little things yeah. like that. But now Lowest expectations possible. If I ever feel the need to revisit that horror show again, um, I will just take your out. And I will have Tony ascend and go join the Stargate crew. <laughs> well, what you could do is that, um, of course, this would be a spoiler for anybody who's currently listening to this podcast, if this story that appears on your website one day, is that Tony's not actually dead. Well, I could do it. He's not dead. Kind of thing. He, his death was faked by, say, maybe Tom Morrow faked his death. Um, and did put him in the Stargate program. And meanwhile, while Tony's exploring the universe, NCIS is getting an anal probe. Tony not know that his death was fake in that kind of scenario? And he's off planet. He's in Atlantis. He has no idea they faked his death. Um I think he's fundamentally, if he has got this support structure, these people who care about him, who come out to give NCIS his anal probe, um, he wouldn't be so cruel as to let them think he was dead if he knew about it. I don't think. I guess it would depend on which circumstances um, he was left with. Like, what if he, um, what if Morrow uses the Stargate program to put Tony in, um, like, witness protection. And Tony doesn't get any kind of choice in it. Like, you're going to, this is what oh, you're yeah. going to have to do, you know. Oh, yeah. that and they, like an extension we, t- we talked about that time. We, we, put, we sort of, sort of, it sort of came up with a plot drift, I think, of, like, using Stargate as, like, the most epic witness protection program ever. Mm-hmm. People who were talented and were useful to the program is they just disappear into the Stargate mm-hmm. program. And that's a really good idea. And instead of Tony being dead, it could just be that Tony's officially missing. And NCIS drops the ball with it. I'm just saying. It's a cool idea. So I could revamp this without the actual horror of, of Unicorn aside. Then you have Tony being all Tony on Atlantis. Um, if he's in witness protection, you could even put him in the Marines. Yeah. He come as an officer. Um Meet somebody hot. <laughs> well, I don't think they'd force the force it on him, but they would give him the option. You know, and Tony okay, do you want to go out as this, or do you want to go out as this? Do you want to, you know, go out as a cop, or do you want to go out as a soldier? Do you yeah. want to go to this outpost, or do you want to go to Atlantis? Because you can't stay on Earth for some reason or another. And Mossad's an easy thing to put it to, right? Is Mossad's after him because of 
I don't know, he's uncovered some horrible thing that they did, and they're going to get in trouble for it, but they're going to take it out on Tony, and everybody knows it. Well, if it's in hi- hiatus, um, Tony could just find out that Ziva's a spy. Yep. Maybe maybe Ziva gets revealed by Tony's actions, and she's killed, and um, her father comes hunting. Although that would be totally out of character, so he since he didn't give a shit about the murder of his son or the death of his son, or even Ziva's death later on, even though it wasn't real. Well, but if what Tony did was reveal not only Ziva's bad acts, but um, embarrasses agency, uh, Eli, Eli's yeah, Eli's bad acts, and Eli's in trouble. Eli would maybe he would. Um, say that it was because of Ziva, but he would be really doing it just for personal revenge. Because that's totally in character. So Morrow gives Tony to Homeworld Security. O'Neill sends him to the mountain. Someone says, this is okay, Mr. Denozo, what can you do? And where do you want to go? Here are your options. Yeah, you had me at Spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> Wall of text. <laughs> so in the meantime, while Tony's out fighting Rafe, um, with a hot ass boyfriend of your choosing, NCIS could be falling apart because of Ziva spying and uh, Tony's presumed kidnapping or death at the hands of Mossad. So I could rework the apocalypse that I started. Yeah. Yes. You don't. You, you don't have to. Ha- you don't have to kill the unicorn for there be con- to be consequences for killing a unicorn. <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. You say you say you didn't kill the unicorn, but you've got its horn and its tail hairs. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're going to charge you for killing a unicorn. <laughs> this is just how it's going to be. Um, yeah, but see that whether you whether or not you kill. Um, whether well, you kill Ziva or not, um, she could be uh, she could be in Gitmo for all I care. But um, either way, you know, it, it, exposing her as a spy at that point would put Mossad in a bad place. Um, would give um, opportunity for Tony to have to be disappeared because he would be a, a target. Yeah. And maybe I could rolling up, wrapping up the theme. I could have uh, Pegasus has soulmates, even if Milky Way doesn't. And um, Tony comes to Atlantis, and he's rolling in soulmates. Because why not? Yay! <laughs> we're down to a we're down to a minute and eighteen seconds. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I changed the title of this podcast anyway because it wasn't working out the way <laughs> the way it should have. I don't think either one of us had the concentration skills to actually do a plot drift tonight. <laughs> We'll try again later. One day we'll get it right. One of these days. <laughs> Anyways, um, say goodnight. Good night, everyone. <laughs>